Hey, thanks for tuning in to the latest sermon. We pray that it challenges you, blesses you, and ultimately that it would stir your heart's affection for Jesus. Enjoy. Let's pray together for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, um, we are grateful for your word to us. We are grateful for the church family that you've provided to us. And I pray today as we, uh, as we study the life of Jesus, as we look at his first miracle, I pray that we would receive from you what you have been preparing us to receive. I pray as we enter into this space, as we uh, sing praise together, as we pray together, as we study scripture together, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would be able to move and work in our hearts and in our minds, uh, that we would give you free reign and access to ourselves so that we may be made more like Christ. And this is our heart's deepest desire, is that these words would ring out within us so that we would be made more like Jesus. Let me pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So throughout my life, I feel like I've been very privileged to go to some really fantastic weddings. Now, the wedding ceremony is always about the same. I'm a pastor, so I've done a ton of weddings. And, you know, I'm always like, it doesn't matter, like, what the bride and groom, like, think they're doing different. I'm like, yeah, I've seen it all. There's only, like, so many things you can do in a wedding ceremony. So it's not really the wedding ceremony that's been fantastic. It's the locations. So in my second year of Bible college, my friend decided to get married at an all-inclusive um, resort in Cuba. And I grew up thinking I was never going to fly on an airplane. Like, that's kind of the way I grew up. I was like, that's for rich people. Like, rich people fly places. I will never do that. So my friend, though, was going to get married in Cuba. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to get some tax money back. So I drained my bank account in February to zero, paid my rent, drained my bank account, flew to Cuba. I was like, this might be my only time going international. Like, that's what I thought. So I was like, and it was amazing. A wedding, when the resort people put it on for you, was fantastic. Like, I didn't have to do anything. Uh, I just showed up. We were like hanging out, eating at the buffet, and then I was like, oh, I guess it's time for the wedding. And then we went to the wedding. It was amazing. And that was way different than the wedding I was at for my other friend the year before, which was December 29th in Calgary, during one of the coldest seasons that they had ever had. And they took outdoor photos for some reason. And I'm standing there in my suit jacket. I'm like, man, Cuba is a big step up from Calgary on December 29th. Like, it's not even in the same ballpark. I was like, you know, if I had to choose a wedding that I'd rather be at, Right, And uh, a few years ago, Lori's sister met a guy from Australia. And Hawaii is halfway between Canada and Australia. So they did all their meetups in Hawaii. So of course, they got married in Hawaii. And we got to go to Hawaii for this wedding. And so I just feel like, wow, I've been to some really awesome weddings. But nothing, nothing compares to a first century Jewish wedding. And I think maybe I saw a little bit of what a first century Jewish wedding would look like when I was in India. The hotel we were staying at hosted a bunch of weddings. And one time as we were pulling in in our taxis, we saw this massive group of guys all wearing the same colored uniform, carrying like these canopies. And then one guy dressed even more extravagant than the rest, and that was the groom. And they do a procession, and they had a carriage, and they do a procession into the place. Like the groom is arriving. And I can only imagine what the bride's procession must have looked like. And there was drums going, and there was music going, and it was like, whoa, this is next level. But even that, I don't think matches the intensity of a first century Jewish wedding. So we know a little bit about Jewish wedding celebrations. The wedding celebration was considered to be the grandest event in life, especially amongst kind of the poor working average folk. 
And now typically the wedding ceremony took place late in the evening and was then followed by a long feast, a huge feast. And then after the feast, the bride and the groom would be taken to their home with a canopy held over their heads like royalty would have. And that's what I saw in India, this canopy held over them. And they would go home by the longest route so that everyone in the town or village could congratulate them on their marriage before they arrived home. Now, instead of a honeymoon, then the couple would basically have an open house party for at least a few days, like two or three days. Sometimes, you know, depending on how wealthy they were, it could be a full week. And the couple at this open house party would be considered sort of like the king and the queen of these festivities. Sometimes they'd even wear little hats or crowns on their heads, and their word at this party was considered to be law. And so if you think about kind of the average person in the first century area of Palestine, Galilee, you know, that's a life that contains a lot of difficulty, a lot of poverty, a lot of sickness. And so the wedding was really considered to be the supreme occasion of your life. You would probably go through the rest of your life without ever having a celebration like this again until you were invited to someone else's wedding. But it still wasn't the same because you weren't kind of the, the honored guest. But your wedding event was really the event of a lifetime. And so because of this, because the wedding was, was so important, because it was such a, a big deal, it was imperative that you took care of your guests in this celebration. This is the type of celebration that Jesus and his family are invited to. And we pick up in John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, "'They have no more wine.'" Listen, we can't overemphasize the distress in Mary's words. They have no more wine. Because in the Jewish wedding, in the Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential. Not necessarily so guests could drink to excess, but because wine was symbolic in the scriptures of celebration and joy. And so it would be deeply embarrassing for the wedding feast, for the wedding party to run out of wine. What it would show is that the groom was not prepared for his wedding. It might call into question his ability to provide for his bride. There would be whispers. People would say, can you believe the one thing he's not supposed to run out of, he ran out of. Like what, a, what, a, what kind of person, what kind of person is this person marrying? Like he can't even keep the wine going. And so not only that, but there's actually some record and, and we have a little bit of record that a groom might even be fined or face a lawsuit from the bride's family if he couldn't provide wine at the wedding feast. So the fact that the wine is gone is actually disastrous for the new couple. This is like the equivalent of like, I don't know, the bride tripping and falling into the wedding cake or something, right? Like it's just like horribly embarrassing. It's, it's awful that this would happen. And this is the setting for Jesus' first miracle. And it's actually full of spiritual meaning. Because in verse 11 of, of this chapter, John says that this was the first of the miraculous signs that Jesus did. And so when John says that this is a sign, it means there's a deeper meaning to this miracle than simply Jesus having the ability to perform a powerful miracle over physical elements, like change water to wine. He's actually, as cool as that is, there's something deeper going on. It's Jesus' first sign. So it's meant to demonstrate something about who Jesus is, and what Jesus has come to accomplish. There's more going on here than just, okay, the wedding ran out of wine and Jesus turns water into wine. There's deeper symbolic meaning here. Now, the, the physical problem is very obvious. The wine has run out. And if we want to even look for a deeper symbolic meaning even to this problem, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that a wedding without wine is like a life without Christ. 
Kent Hughes puts it like this, a life without Christ is a life without wine because a life without Christ is a life without true joy. Now, I'll just pause here for a moment. Obviously, for some of you and for people that we know, wine has not been a source of joy. Wine and the abuse of alcohol is a destroyer of many lives and families. But I want you to recognize that wine in Scripture is symbolic of joy. The scriptures are consistently using wine as a symbol for joy. In Ecclesiastes, go ahead, eat your food with joy, drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. The psalmist writes, you allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give them strength. And in Isaiah 55, in a section we've titled, An Invitation to the Lord's Salvation, it begins, Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. And so to the Jewish mind, wine is a symbol of joy, of provision, of having all that you need. It's, it's um, symbolic of celebration. And the rabbis of Jesus' day, in some of their writings, they would have writings like, without wine, there is no joy. And so we could very well read into Mary's words, they have no more wine, as her basically saying, they have no more joy. And so the deeper meaning, the first deeper meaning that we can take from this problem that leads to Jesus' first sign miracle is that a life without Christ is a life without true joy. If Jesus had not been there to turn water into wine, the joy would have run out. So like the newlywed couple in this account, the universal experience of humanity apart from Christ is that there does come a time when the wine runs out. What I mean is there comes a time when the joy and exhilaration of this life is gone. No matter how much life experience you chase, no matter where you go or what you do, there comes a time when the joys that you can produce in your own effort run out. I kind of think of it like some of these like Instagram influencers and stuff, right? Who are traveling all over the world, taking like fantastic photos, and then you see kind of like the behind the scenes shot and it just doesn't look that glamorous at all. And it's sort of like that, no matter what you chase in this life, eventually the joy of it runs out. And I think maybe a great example of this is the author Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway, if you know anything about him, he went after everything that life could give him. He was a reporter and an ambulance driver in World War I. He spent years traveling around Europe. He was involved in the Spanish Civil War. He was friends with superstar bullfighters and friends with famous authors like F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he was a brilliant author himself. He wrote amazing books like The Old Man and the Sea or The Sun Also Rises. And in whatever Hemingway did, whether it was sports, hunting, romance, warfare, writing, he kind of went all in. And he was kind of considered like the best at everything that he did. And in one of his books, it's, uh, there's this wife of a dying hunter, and she says to her dying husband, you're the most complete man I've ever met. And you kind of wonder, knowing Hemingway's life, if maybe he was feeling that way about himself. He'd been everywhere. He'd done everything. He was a complete man. There was nothing, you know, manly that he lacked. But Hemingway went after the wine of life, and then there came a time when that wine ran out. In the early morning hours of July 2nd, 1961, Hemingway um, shot himself with his favorite shotgun. And it was very, very premeditated. He had to unlock the basement storeroom. He had to go upstairs, and he took his own life because there was no more life left to live. And so no matter who you are and no matter what wines you have tasted, there comes a time when the exhilarations and the excitement of life wear out. We will all find that if chasing just what this life has to offer us is our focus, then failure is inevitable. 
And there's just over and over again, you hear of people who've reached the pinnacle of their success and they feel empty. Taylor Swift talked about it in one of her documentaries, winning, I think it was the Grammy. And then being like, oh, I am a Swifty. Yeah, I like Taylor Swift. She's great. <laughs> Songwriter, uh, singer, guitar player. She's great. But she kind of talks about how she won this, this award that she'd been chasing and then was like, well, what now? What now? And there's other people who've done that too. I talked about Rain Wilson, the actor Dwight Schrute from the, who played Dwight Schrute in The Office, saying, you know, at the height of his success, feeling like, is this it? Isn't, shouldn't there be more? Maybe I should have more money. Maybe I should have movie deals. Maybe I should be an A-list actor. Like, you just, it's not enough. At some point, if you chase just the wine of this life, you'll be left empty. And so everyone needs the joy of knowing Jesus, who is the source of life, who gives life meaning and purpose. Jesus came so that we could have true life, abundant life, right? That's what Jesus says. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so Jesus makes us a new creation and gives to us an abundant and thriving life and joy in him. So the solution to this lack of wine or the lack of joy is Jesus. Mary knows that Jesus can help in this situation at the wedding. So she says to Jesus, they have no more wine. And here's Jesus' response to that. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Okay, it's weird. It's a weird thing to say. Um, right? Like, and, then, uh, and then his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, this is a super weird interaction, right? Jesus' response to his mom sounds a bit harsh uh, to our ears. Like one preacher was ta talking, he's like, to the teenagers, he's like, I don't recommend you do this with your mom, you know? Like, take out the garbage. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And then when your mom gets mad at you, you'd be like, I'm just quoting Jesus, right? Like, don't do that. Don't do that. But, but seriously, as flippant maybe as Jesus' response may sound or is kind of harsh, uh, scholars assure us, and I'm taking their word for it, that in the culture of that day, this isn't really considered Jesus being offensive or insulting to his mother. And in his gospel, Luke makes the point that Jesus did live in submission to his parents' authority as a child. And we don't know at what point it happened, but it appears that Joseph died prior to Jesus' adult years. We don't have any mention of Joseph after about age 12 of Jesus, so... He's never mentioned after Jesus' childhood. But what we do know that, that Luke makes a point to say that Jesus honored his mother and father when he was alive and lived in submission to their authority. But there's something happening here. Again, the deeper sign, there's something happening here that Jesus is indicating to his mother that now there's going to be a change here. Not only is he a grown man about to set out on his own, but he's also the Messiah who's going to someday and is currently establishing his kingdom on the earth. So Jesus doesn't really say no, he doesn't really say yes, he simply is reminding her of the change in the role and relationship. He's kind of no longer her like little boy obligated to do what she asks, because now he's the Messiah and he's like, I got to obey what my father in heaven is asking me to do, because Jesus now does what the father in heaven wills him to do. And so Jesus tells his mother, it's not yet his time, which is Again, and then right away he goes and does it. So, and this is, the this is the first time in John. There's another time in John when Jesus is invited to go somewhere and he's like, oh, no, 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 it's not yet my time. And then he shows up there anyways. So this is a little bit mysterious why he's like, it's not my time, but I'm gonna do it anyways. So something changes here. Like, we're not exactly sure why. Okay, so let's just put that out there. We don't know why. He said, it's not my time. And then he goes and does it. But Mary, 
isn't offended by this. She's not entirely put off by Jesus' words. She just turns to the servants and instructs them, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So Mary doesn't argue with Jesus. She doesn't plead with him. By her words, it seems she just kind of leaves the request in his hands, deal with it as he sees fit. He might not tell the servants to do anything, but if he does tell them to do something, Mary says, hey, if he says anything, you should obey what he says. And so here's just a little lesson for us from Mary. She's willing to ask Jesus for anything, but she yields everything, right? So the posture is, I'll ask for what I want, but I yield to Jesus because he is the one who knows what is best and right. And so what would it mean for us today if we were willing to ask anything of Jesus, but we yield everything, we hold it open-handed? I think our temptation sometimes is to say, well, if we're dealing with the Son of God who can like bring down lightning from heaven and can calm a sea storm with just a word, then we better not trouble him with the little stuff. But even the Apostle Paul tells us, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. In everything. So what we do as faithful believers is we ask for what we desire or what we believe to be best but we're willing to yield that to Jesus because he ultimately knows what is best and right for us. But I do think we need to know this, that nothing is too small for Jesus. Obviously, this miracle was not a necessity. It was a bit of a luxury. Now, I know that for this newlywed couple, this is a disaster. I understand that. I understand in the minds of this couple, and maybe this is a relation of Mary or something, so she's feeling the weight of it. It's a disaster for them. But just consider this for a moment. This miracle is not like other miracles Jesus performed where an individual has suffered for years begging on the street or a child's life is hanging in the balance or a boat is about to be destroyed in a storm. This is not that kind of emergency situation which demands immediate and dramatic action. Running out of wine was a problem, but it's not a tragedy. I mean, I'm sure in the newlywed couple's mind it's a tragedy, but I mean, in the grand scheme of life, there's a lot worse things going on. There's people who are lame and there's people who are blind and there's children who are dying. And so running out of wine, kind of a small thing, comparatively speaking. But I think that there is in that even a lesson to be learned from this miracle. That God is concerned with our non-critical problems as well. I think sometimes people have this idea that God is sort of like the president of the United States, like a person who has so many demands on his time that he can't possibly respond to them all. You kind of think of God as sitting at like this heavenly desk with all these telephones that are ringing with different prayer requests and and he's busy answering them and we're like, who are we to bother God with our problems? If that's our idea of God, it's it's a wrong-headed idea because God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's never overtaxed by us calling upon him for our help. He's also a compassionate and merciful father who cares deeply about his children. God is never annoyed when we come to him with what we consider to be small problems. Continuing that analogy of bothering a busy president, God doesn't look at our prayers to him, our calls to him as interruptions in his busy schedule. We are his children. God cares about the little things that affect his children. So we should feel free, like Mary, to bring to Jesus everything. Embarrassments and weakness and pain and trouble and things that we think are beneath him. Like, I've met people who are like, this is just a me problem. I just gotta get myself together. Like, yeah, the thing is, you probably can't without Jesus' help. So you might as well just ask him for help. So, you know, even when you think it's a small thing, or sometimes you're like, I can deal with this on my own. I'm like, but don't, please. I do this all the time. That's what I'm telling myself. I feel like, oh, I shouldn't have to ask Jesus for help on this because I know what to do, or I should know what to do. 
And it's like, where does that mindset come from? We can just ask him. Nothing is too small or beneath him. These things are important. And so Jesus says, you know, basically saying, ask me anything, but as you do, yield everything to me. Acknowledge that it's my will and not your will. It's my timing and not yours. It's the king of heaven who's now going to take things over. So if we put it into his hands, then we must let his hands work. And so that's what I mean. You ask for anything, but you kind of give it open-handed. And they say, okay, Lord, I've given it to you. This is my heart's desire, but you know best. And I'm going to let your hands work. That's what Mary does. Now, Jesus, for whatever reason, does decide to help out this wedding party. But he does it in like the most secretive way possible. The only people who are going to know what happened at this party will be the servants and the disciples. And maybe that's because Jesus said it's not the time for a very public display of power. But he does want to help his mother out and the bride and the groom out. And it's a sign for his disciples about what his ministry will be about. So we pick back up in the story. John chapter 2. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Notice that in the performance of this miracle, Jesus sort of desecrates a religious icon. I don't know if you've, you've thought about this, but Jesus gets the servants to refill the ceremonial hand-washing jars. So what you have to know about the hand-washing jars is they're only used for hand-washing, for religious ceremony purposes only. And Jesus takes this, if we want to call it this, holy water and makes it into wine. The Old Testament law required various kinds of washings, and all of these washings were done to demonstrate to the, to the people that they were unclean, and to come into God's presence, they needed to be cleaned. So these washings were commanded by God's law, but the Pharisees um, kind of took them to this next level. Like, remember, remember when we talked about the Sabbath law and how like, God had a Sabbath law, but it was kind of pretty wide open and it was for the good of the people. And then the Pharisees came and in their zealousness to do the right thing, they made it into a religious burden that no one could bear. They did the same thing with the hand washing. There was already laws about ceremonial washing, but the Pharisees added to this. They added more rules to the washing regulations. So if you actually read about them, they had rules about how you should wash. You had to hold your hands a certain way, and you had to make sure that the water that you took out that was on your hands didn't drip back into the ceremonial washing jars. So you had to do this, and then you had to do it a second time, and it was really like a really convoluted process. And you had to be thinking all the time, like, am I making sure my water isn't dripping back into the, into the jar and all this kind of stuff? So there's just a bunch of extra rules on top of this. And it just made it into a demanding and grueling religion. So why does Jesus choose to use the ceremonial washing jars? Okay, because think about this with me. Think about the logic of this. It's a wedding that has had a lot of wine. There's a bunch of empties, right? There's a bunch of jars lying around that once held wine that he could say, go collect all the jars that once held wine, fill them with water, you know, and I'll do my thing. But he doesn't do that. It would be a lot easier to do that. And he says, hey, take those ceremonial washing jars, fill those with water, 
That's, that's a choice that's being made. So something deeper is happening. Remember, it's not just a miracle. It's a sign of something. So something deeper is happening. When Jesus changes the water in the hand-washing jars, he's already demonstrating that he's the fulfillment of the law. Scripture says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So with Jesus, a new covenant is coming, a covenant that is superior to the old. Jesus takes something that had become a burden and turns it into something very wonderful. The author of Hebrews affirms this. He says, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he's made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. And so this miracle even is a picture of the superiority of the new covenant to the old. Because Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled the law, meeting all the law's requirements, Jesus was able to die for sinners on the cross. And the salvation he secured for us makes it possible for us to leave that drudgery behind and to enter into the joy of his salvation. And the point is that by using these jars specifically, Jesus was testifying the old religious rituals are dead and he's filling the jars with new life. Jesus is saying that he brings joy to life and the joy that he gives is abundant and overflowing. Again, think logically with me about how big these jars are because it told us in the scripture how big these jars are. Jesus produced 120 to 180 gallons of wine. If, if those were all filled to the brim, which it says it was, if, if all of that was turned into wine, that's a ton of wine. That's more than 2,000 four-ounce glasses. So if wine is symbolic of joy, then we've got abundant joy here. That's abundant. Like, that's a lot. And at the end of his earthly life, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. And so there's signs here all over of, of a new covenant coming, of a changing from the old ways to the new ways, of new joy being produced, abundant joy. We find that religious institutions tends to tell you, get yourself cleaned up. Do the rituals. If you do them enough, if you get cleaned up enough, you'll be high enough up on the purity ladder that maybe then you can celebrate. And usually you celebrate by looking at all the people not as good as you. But Jesus, when he turns the religious water into wine, he's saying, hey, we're done with the old burdensome religious requirements because I'm going to be all that you need. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to cleanse you. So let's get rid of these burdens and celebrate. I'm here to bring freedom. Don't put your faith in religious institution or ritual. Put your faith in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the source of your joy. You will be filled with my joy. So at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus provides great joy by taking away the drudgery of religious duty and replacing it with the celebration of new life. And here's what's really interesting to me. Jesus and his disciples never do follow the tradition of ceremonial hand washing. It's all over the Gospels that the Pharisees are annoyed at Jesus and his disciples and they say things like this. Why do, you, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? They ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand washing before they eat. And this becomes a sticking point for the Pharisees. Why don't you wash your hands like we tell you to wash your hands before you eat? I got, you should probably wash your hands with soap and water before you eat. Um, but not for a religious thing, it's just a good health practice. But that, it's just interesting to me that Jesus takes these ceremonial hand washing jars, turns them into wine, and never again does the ceremonial hand washing. And his disciples don't either. There's something happening there that we need to understand. So Jesus has already begun to dismantle the old and bring about the new. 
And so one of the signs that we should take away from this miracle is that the breaking in of the kingdom of God begins not with solemn procession and ritual, but with a party and a celebration. And that's why I believe that the church, which is supposed to be you know, filled with people who represent the kingdom of heaven, should be a place of joy. A church without joy has serious problems. That's why it's awesome to have our kids up here leading us in worship. And I, I wish I'd uh, said thank you to the two girls who are up here doing such a great job clapping and jumping and dancing because a church that has joy is a church that represents the kingdom and a church that has no joy is a church that has missed the mark. And now Jesus provided not just any wine, but the best wine. We read that the master of the banquet said, you have saved the best wine until now. The best was finally being served. The best was saved till last. And so I actually see in this miracle of Jesus a prophetic foreshadowing of what Jesus had come to do. The Jewish people, of course, were hoping for a Messiah who would start a revolution, kick the Romans out of Israel, and rule over the kingdom of Israel like like King David before it all went bad. You know, do that again. But Jesus came to do something better. He came to lay down his life and shed his blood. And through the shedding of his blood, Jesus instituted a new covenant that was better than the old. The best was saved till last. When Jesus sat at the Last Supper and he held up the cup of Passover wine, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All those sacrifices, the blood of goats, lambs, and birds had run out and fallen short. But then God himself came, performed a miracle. The word became flesh, and he became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And the author of Hebrews explains it like this. Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in place of honor at God's right hand. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close, but as we go further and deeper into this miracle, we get here that that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed once for all time. His blood did what no other sacrifice had been able to do. There is power in the blood of Jesus to wash away every sin, to heal every sickness, to break every curse for every person who has ever lived. God saved the best till last. Today, as we took communion, We remember this new covenant that we entered through the shedding of Jesus' precious blood. Remember that Jesus is the bread of life. He sustains us. His blood is like the wine which brings joy because it it is through his blood shed for us that we're saved and forgiven our sins for all time. And as we reflect on this new covenant, let us be so glad at the freedom from sin and the freedom from law that was bought for us. And now let us be diligent to follow God's law, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, as Paul says, but in the new way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who brings us to life, who pours the love of the Father into our hearts, who brings so much joy, even in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. This is the sign of the miracle of water into wine. Joy has come. Jesus has secured it for us in his blood, his death, his resurrection. And that brings us to great joy. Let me pray for you and then we'll worship together. Lord Jesus, there's so much about your life that sometimes we don't understand and we don't know. But I do pray for each one of us that we would experience your joy in great measure. 
I pray that abundant life and abundant joy would be produced in us by your spirit, not based on our circumstances or chasing after what this world has to offer, but because our eyes are fixed on you. Would you fill us and our church? Let us be a people of joy, representing the joy of the kingdom of heaven. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be a joy-filled people. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.